Okay. Hello, everybody. My name is Ed Posey, and I am a recovered alcoholic. Uh, grace of God in the 12 Steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, July 22nd, 94 is my last drink. And do the math, three weeks, it'll be 27 years. And that is today, even if I look at it, is beyond my comprehension. Uh, because when I first got involved in this or was introduced to the thought of being sober, uh, achieving a year seemed uh, impossible. But I'm going to give you a little bit of background about me and uh, because I'll try to follow the script because the script asked me to tell you in a general way what I was like, what happened, and what my life is like today. Uh, and it's not anything that I planned. Uh, and I don't think any of us here tonight planned on on uh, June 30th, 2021, to be sitting in an AA meeting. Now, I don't know. That wasn't on my plan, you know. But uh, I have a great life today as a result of it. But, you know, I, I'm i from Dallas, Texas. A year ago, I moved to Joplin, went into semi-retirement. And I'll get into that as we go through it. But I grew up in, you know, in what that time I considered to be a normal family. You know, the last of the baby boomers, might want to say. Uh, my dad worked. My mom was a housewife. I'm the only son, the middle uh, of two two sisters. And uh, my dad suffered through the Great Depression. His father had uh, died of alcoholism. And uh, as a kid, he was farmed out with the rest of his siblings. So he suffered as a result of that. But what he did for me was try to provide me every opportunity that he had been denied his whole life. So there's really no reason for me to take my first drink other than curiosity. Uh, early on in life, uh, you know, I seemed to be above average with, in school and in sports and everything else. Uh, alcohol didn't let me really get too far. Uh, you know, looking back, and that's how we kind of identify and connect dots is I really can't see too well going forward. But I really think I was headed for trouble probably at the age 13 because somewhere 12, 13 is when I first time I ever felt the effects of alcohol. And unbeknownst to me at that time, uh, I was going to pursue that for the next 20 something years. Uh, you know, I grew up in the 60s and 70s, and anybody that grew up in that time, it was an interesting time in life. The country was in turmoil at that time. You had, you know, the things going on on campus. You had the Vietnam War going on and stuff. And so it, it was exhilarating in some part, you know. And, and I've always kind of been the guy that's kind of been in the middle. Uh, uh, had I been a year or two older, I probably would have been Vietnam. I was 1A. I just didn't get drafted. Uh, uh, and I wanted to be a part of the excitement. But I can remember even when I was in elementary school that I had an attraction for, I don't know, those neon lights of the bars. I don't know why. Long before I ever went into a bar, there was a bar around the corner where we used to go do laundry once or twice a week. The family would load up in the car and uh, it was called the Tropicana and had this big tropical neon uh, palm tree out there and, you know, and little martini glass and neon lights. And I was attracted to that early on in life. And I don't know why. I mean, my sisters weren't, but I just kept thinking one day I'm going to go in there. Uh, I never made it to that particular bar, but I've drank myself across this country inside now. Uh, you know, and, uh, and if I hadn't been drinking, I probably wouldn't have done some of the things I did. 
and I have to be honest with you, I had a lot of fun with it. Uh, you know, it, it lowered the inhibitions and, and, and so forth and whatnot, uh, you know, and, uh, but when I was probably about 12 or 13, somewhere in that era or something like that, and I guess puberty is kind of kicking in or whatever. I don't remember sixth grade, fifth grade. I don't know. I started taking interest in girls. At least I thought I was. And I always hung out with guys older than me. And I don't know if you're in my era, they were always kind of uh, pushing and prodding the younger kids, you know, but there was this girl that had transferred to our school and boy, she was attractive. And I thought I was in love or whatever, but I think about second or third week she was there. She invited me to a party. Now I'd had a few drinks before just trying to be cool and, you know, and act like grown up or whatever. And, and, you know, whiskey tasted terrible. Oh my God, you know, and, uh, but this particular night, it was a, it was a Thursday night, if I remember correctly. And she had invited me over to her apartment for a house or whatever for a party. And, and I got over there and I'm very shy and didn't know anything about, what I was going to do or whatever, but you know, I, I went in there with these people and there was a bunch of people in there. They were older than I, and I didn't know any of these people. And I felt very uncomfortable and very ill at ease and didn't know how to talk to anybody or do anything. And I remember I started drinking and this is the first time the magic happened. Bill talks about arriving, but all of a sudden the magic happened. And, and for a brief period of time, I, belonged. I was, you know, Bill said I was a part of life at last. And I felt that way for a brief period of time. But what happened at that particular time, unbeknownst to me, exactly what happened was sometime after that, I came to in a field in a car with these guys and scared to death, didn't know where the hell I was and didn't know what the hell had just happened. I just simply knew that I needed to be home and be in school the next day or I'd be in big trouble. Uh, somehow or another, I, I got back home that night. They dropped me off and I remember running in the house and going to my room and passing out or going to sleep, whatever you want to call it. And the next day I woke up, I did not remember how scared I was being in that car alone in the middle of a field and nowhere and not knowing who these people were or where the hell I was. But I remembered what had happened that night, how wonderful I felt. Now, you know, was I in trouble at that time? I don't know. But unbeknownst to me, I began to pursue that. Uh, I always had these great ideas in school that I was going to, you know, finish school and become a mathematician and do all these great things. I mean, apparently I had the aptitude for it. Uh, things came relatively easy for me. But then looking back, I began to see at this point that alcohol was becoming a more important part of my life because I was drinking during the week. Uh, at that particular time, I found out uh, that you could call up the liquor store in Dallas, Texas. Johnny's Liquor Store is on Fitchu. I know exactly where that place is today. And they would deliver you the liquor. And all you had to do was tip the guy five bucks. He didn't care how old you were. And, you know, I would have people over from school on Friday night. We would drink at my house and, uh, you know, we'd get drunk and they would go home. And, and then I would finish off the ball the next day and the day after that. And there was times I would go to school drunk. And I didn't think anything about this. Uh, you know, my dad, as I went through this, he, he, since he had been through what he had and he believed it was a matter of willpower. And at some point in my life, I might grow up or assert my will and, and move on in life. He was very ignorant uh, of alcoholism. And, 
why should he know? I, mean, I don't know. But, you know, we get into uh, uh, junior high school and, and, and the partying and the drinking and, and all the other stuff that was going on in the 60s and 70s was becoming much more important to me. And, you know, not that I ever intentionally said I'm never going to finish school and finish the plans I had in life. They just started slowly but surely becoming less important to me and, and the drinking and the partying was becoming more important to me. My sports, I kind of just set that aside. Uh, when I hit high school, it was getting to be problematic for me to make first period. And uh, I had a straight A student in front of me and I had a straight A student behind me. And now my grades are suffering and I'm just really not putting any effort in anything. All I wanted to do, and I didn't understand this at the time, was just drink and be left alone, you know? Uh, so I think it was about the 11th grade, 10th grade or whatever, the school and I had a, a disagreement uh, about them not wanting to eliminate my first period. And then and, 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 uh, I thought I would show them. I thought, well, if you're not gonna eliminate my first period, then I'll just quit. And they said, well, we're really sorry to see you go. And they held the door and out I walked. And uh, I went home and uh, my poor family, they, they just were bewildered not knowing what to do. I said, well, I'll go get my GED. I said, you won't be able to pass it. So I had a high school education at 16 with every intent of as soon as I could get 18 to enroll in college. I had a, wound up with a union job at that time. And then I went in, actually enrolled in college, you know, and uh, now I've really got a problem. <laughs> I'm working a full-time job and going to college at night. That left very little time for drinking. And so I had to make a decision. Now, I, like I said, I did not realize, you know, Bill talks about alcohol, you know, and, and, and uh, whatever it is, different view that, you know, alcohol or what his step one was, alcohol was his master. I couldn't see this at this time because I wasn't suffering a lot of consequences. I did a lot of other things in the 60s and 70s that got me in trouble, you know, and, and, and those kind of went by the wayside as time went on, but alcohol was not optional to me. And so I was still basically kind of enjoying it up to this point without getting in a whole lot of trouble. Uh, so I quit school with every intention of going back, you know, and uh, I'd gotten in trouble somewhere, let's see, about 71, 72, things were starting to get a little more serious. I'm not the type of person that ever married anybody that was an Al-Anon of that nature because I was full blown by this time and anybody that interfered with my drinking or had anything to say negative about the situation or move. So I married alcohol. So I don't even remember where I got married the first time. I honest to God don't. I'm sure it was in Dallas, Texas. It was a JP and the girl I'd gotten her pregnant and, and, uh, she was just like me and we decided to get married. And I remember just showing up at my folks' house telling my poor mom that I just got married and she just bewildered and trying to do what she could to make this thing, you know, get wedding gifts and all this other stuff. But we had a son at this time. And, uh, and I wound up after that, got in some trouble about 77. And I was, you know, had moved out of town to do a geographic and try to figure this out. I had set it up where I had a year off, uh, and I thought if I just got out of town, might be able to figure out a plan. I, keep in mind, I really don't know that drinking's a problem at this time, 
but to give you an idea that it was a problem, when I moved out in the country, I measured the distance to the nearest liquor stores because I moved to a dry county. And that's how I rolled at that time. I had no idea that that was not normal, <laughs> one might say. But it was normal for me. And it was normal. So, you know, what happened there was I wound up getting in some trouble down there. And, uh, and the courts sent me to a place that something like Roland had was. I spent a year and six months learning all the Freudian stuff about the inner workings of the mind. You know, what makes me tick, personality, all this information. It's great information. It's just not going to keep me sober, you know. And, uh, and so, you know, I walked out of there and, uh, and, uh, and I had all this great information about, you know, me. And I went back to drinking. Now, this time drinking changed a little bit because, you know, I was just drinking on weekends. And in a matter of weeks, I was drinking every day because that's how I drank. It wasn't an occasional deal. I mean, I know there's periodic drinkers and all this other stuff. That wasn't me. So that marriage went south, and 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 a short time later, that young lady hung herself in jail under a PI. Uh, I had gotten another great job, and I was going to get custody of my son, and I was dating another gal just like me. Uh, and uh, we did those things, and then we realized we needed to kind of do the right thing and, and raise this young man and this boy I had and we tried that for about nine months and I had a great job at that time and, and I just couldn't take it after about nine months uh, I consciously went back out with a big bind and I did and then the wheels came off really quick and I and I, I began to sense this the book talks about impending doom you know knowing where this was going to end and not understanding what was wrong with me and not knowing how to get out of this cycle that I was in um, you know, my son's going to grandparents over here. He's going down to, you know, other grandparents and, you know, and, uh, and I'm just, I'm running around the country and, and uh, still drinking, thinking I'm going to be able to figure this out somehow, some way. Uh, eventually that marriage ended too. And that young lady died of this thing as well. And, you know, normal people, I think at this point in their life, I would hope most people would sit there and go, man, there's a problem here, but that really didn't come to my mind at that time because I was caught up in this thing and, 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 I, and I just, I believed somehow, some way that I was going to be able to figure this out and, uh, and it progressively got worse. So for the next 14 years, this went on, but I'll tell you what happened in 70, 76, 77, when I hit that jail cell in East Texas that time. And I was sincere as I could be. This is the time I'd moved down there to get my life back on track and try to, you know, stay sober and uh, do the right thing. I was sitting in that jail cell and I, and I said this to God. I said, God, get me out of this and I will try to help others not wind up where I just wind up. And I meant that. It's interesting that Josh said he went to the jail because I believe this in my heart of hearts, not that it can change anything, that had somebody shown up from Alcoholics Anonymous at that time, I would have gotten sober. We talk about bottoms. The bottom's an internal thing. It's not an external thing. And this is very internal because I could tell you the circumstances. I had my two-year, one-year-old son in a car and we were on a hundred plus mile an hour chase scene with cops and guns. And when I came to sitting in that jail cell, that shame, that guilt and remorse was a bottom that I have didn't experience even in 94. 
And I believe that. And that's one reason I'm kind of passionate about what I do. And I've been doing for 27 years is trying to put myself in a position to, to look for people like me and make myself available to them. Early on, it was crazy. I was running around 24-7 thinking I was going to sober up the whole world. <laughs> that didn't work out either. But hell, it kept Ed sober, you know. <laughs> That's for sure. So let's, let's kind of move forward a little bit. So, you know, I was always able, with the help of my family, to kind of bounce back from these things. They would allow me to come home and let me just lay up and nurse myself back to health. And I was always able to go back to work. That wonderful job, you know. There was a period in the hmm, late 80s, I was going to Portland, Oregon, drinking my way across the country. And I got there one morning. You got you to love this. I'm following a convoy. I'm driving trucks this time, and Freddie Fender's doing this. He had just gotten sober, so he's doing this thing for truckers against drugs or whatever. So I'm enjoying just tailing around the end of this convoy, drinking myself across the country. And I came to in Portland one day and I picked up a beer and I looked out the window and I thought, I wonder if this was an alcoholic is. Now I had never had that thought in my entire life. And I pushed it aside because my mind defaulted to an alcoholic's a guy sitting underneath the bridge with a brown paper bag. I had a job. I was fixing to get married. Life was going pretty decent. The only thing is I was just drinking. So what happened over the next few years was a lot of geographics, a lot of moving around, uh, a lot of uh, internal feelings of just hopelessness. You know, uh, the family uh, trying to help me and figure out what was wrong with me and uh, me trying to figure out what was wrong with me too. And I was starting to ask myself the question, am I crazy? I had a cousin that I was living with, uh, nah, this was back in the 70s. And uh, he was a violent type of drunk when he got drunk. And uh, we'd been going to college together and he'd gone back to Louisiana to his dad's and, and uh, they'd been trying to help him over the years. And uh, he got real violent with his father and attacked him. And his father was the president of a bank. And so they actually, what they did this time, they gave him shock treatment. That's what they used to do to some of us. And when he came back, they had fried a portion of his brain to where all he could do basically was walk around in circles. Now, it did not solve his drinking problem, but it did make it to where he would not raise his hand to you. And so when I asked myself the question, am I crazy? I would default to Andy and I go, well, no, that's what crazy is. So I didn't know. And I, and I sure as hell wasn't going to ask you because you might say yes. And then, then I'd really be up a creek without a paddle if you confirmed that I was crazy. But I was really beginning to question what was going on. You know, my drinking were producing instant blackouts. I couldn't tell you what was going to happen you know, when I took a drink. And I didn't, and I was wondering why that was, because that had never happened before. Um, so basically what happened, I'm going to get sober here in a minute. <laughs> Be a good idea. What happened was I eventually became unemployable and the family was done with me. Uh, on my dad's uh, deathbed, I'd probably hurt him more than anybody probably could have hurt him. And he finally made a decision. He, he had a chance. He, he was dying. It took a year or so. And he knew it. So he was able to reflect in his life on some of the things he was successful at and some of the things he had failed at. And when it came to me, he just really didn't know what was wrong. He said, I don't know what Ed is, what his problem is. 
said, I don't know if he doesn't care. I don't know uh, if he's remorseful. All I know is everything I've done to try to help him has failed. And so this is my last request. Don't help him. Don't let him in the house. Don't take a phone call. Stop it and stop it now. Now, my poor mom could not have done this. But my older sister, she had no problem doing it. She was ready to pull this trigger on me 10 or 15 years before he did. I resented that woman for a long time. <laughs> She's one of my best buddies today, but whew, she tough. So I show up at the door after I get out of South Texas jail because I had a wreck and a blackout with nowhere to go. And they meet me at the front door and my son's car is there and everybody's car is there. And I know that, yeah, my dad had passed away and they greet me at the front door and they say, today's your dad's funeral. And I said, yeah, I kind of figured that and said, you're not invited and you can't come in. Well, you know, the unwelcome hanger owner didn't have anywhere to go. So I just passed out on the porch and I tried to get some help maybe a few months before with the Dallas Council of Alcoholism. And I, they were the first people ever told the truth and they looked at me and I'm not a big guy. You take some weight off me, you know, kind of like Bill's situation. You know, I was very malnourished and, and they only had like a three day detox bed, which wasn't going to help me, but they had been looking for me and they had this bed open. And I said, well, what do I do between now and money? He said, well, call Parkman and tell him you're having a heart attack or you can go down to this mission. I thought, Jesus, I don't know about that. Well, I got a ride from my older sister and they're very ashamed of going down to Skid Row, basically is where I went. And I wouldn't even let her take me around to where I was going. And she dropped me off and I went over here and passed down the corner and went in and sang for my supper that night and crawled up in a bunk. And Came to, fell out of the bunk bed, landed on a piece of concrete. I think I broke my arm, stumbled around. And uh, a day later, I sat on that curb in front of that mission. And I looked around and, and I realized it was over. Welcome to step one for me. I conceded this was over. No thought of creating my life again, getting back to work or anything. I figured I'd, I'd stumble around, get something to drink. And, you know, and uh, if I made it back to mission that night, so be it. If not, so be it. It didn't matter anymore. Then I wound up my little detox and that's where I met my sponsor who was my mentor for 22 years until he passed away. And he's the first person ever said anything that made any sense to me when he began to talk about alcoholism. And, and, and I was able to connect the dots immediately. He explained to me, you know, the physical component of it and how it's progressive. And, you know, with the first drink, I can't tell you what's going to happen. And then he talked about the unmanageability, the inability to leave it alone, no matter how great the wish and necessity. And then he asked the question, if you'd been able to manage that decision, when you said you never want to take a drink again, would you and I be talking? I said, for God's sake, no. What it did for me was taking me from what I thought at that time was a bad person to a very sick person. Now, I had my thoughts on what Alcoholics Anonymous was. I thought it was a bunch of old farts that sat around, drank coffee, and smoked cigarettes. Well, and I qualify for all three of those today. But this guy had an answer, and I knew he had an answer, and I didn't have an answer. And that put me in a very awkward situation because it meant for the first time in my life, I was going to ask to ask somebody for some help unconditionally and ask him for help because I needed help. And he asked me a few questions. You know, he talked about honesty and I thought, well, I don't know much about that. He said, do you have an honest desire to never take another drink? I said, for God's sake, I do. He said, this is where we'll begin. 
you know, and uh, are you willing to go to any length or are you willing to follow directions? I said, well, yeah, I think I am. And then, so by the time I got a little detox, I had nowhere to go. And so I, by this time I'm eating three squares a day. I'm shit. I've had a few showers. I'm looking good, feeling better and all this other stuff. And my mind's starting to focus more on other things. I'm needing to fix up this relationship with a girl I've been dating for eight years, 12 years, whatever I've been dating for. And, and I wind up having to go to the Salvation Army to live. And I went there kicking and screaming. I hell didn't want to be there, but I had nowhere else to go. <laughs> so. I'll be damned. They had an AA group in that Salvation Army, and that old fart was in there doing a meeting again. And I walked out of that meeting into a little foyer, and I stopped, and I said, okay, God, I'm not stupid. I said, I could just dismiss the first thing that happened is just something happened. Second time, maybe it's just coincidence. This is the third time this is in my face. Maybe I'm supposed to do this. Now, I'd already had an overview of the program. He gave me a very thorough overview of how to work the steps and what he had done. And I made that decision then, and I actually got busy going through the process. What's pretty amazing about this is my experience in there in about 90 days, I don't know, 60 days, 70 days, something like that, a subtle thought came to me while I lived there. I said, Ed, you don't have to be here. You're free to go do whatever you want to do. And the first time in my life, I felt peace about that. I was not driven to go get the job. I was not driven to go get the relationship. I was not driven to the damn thing. I just knew I was a free man and I knew it. And we immediately got busy looking for other alcoholics. We just go down and sit in front of the shelter at night because I started reading history. My sponsor was a big history guy. He held a master's in physics. I was a broke, unemployable truck driver. And so I started duplicating what the old AAs had done. We'd catch these drunks coming in there and they'd just be drunk as hell and we'd be talking AA to them and they'd be boo-hooing and crying and all this other stuff. And like I said, nobody stayed sober but us. Uh, but I did that religiously. But what he showed me is what to do by his example. Because had he not been sitting in that detox meeting for 11 years straight, he wasn't looking for Ed Posey. He was not doing it. He was doing it because that's what he hired on to do in the third step. You know, uh, and what he had learned to do, he came in AA in the 60s and went back out and spent 14 years out there. I will be forever grateful to him. I got to meet a lot of people. Some of the old timers are gone. I mean, David A. passed on and uh, Joe McQueenie was his sponsor. I to meet Joe. I knew Cersei. I knew Dr. Bob's son. I got to meet a lot of the old, old hands. And they all pretty much walked the same path. And they're an inspiration to me. And, you know, he used to say things, you know, you can have some of this stuff they have because I, you know, in his case, he believed he wouldn't live long enough to do this. I mean, he died with 30 something years. His sponsor had 40 something. I've got 27. Those are all without relapses, which is pretty insane. It doesn't mean I'm going to die sober shit. It ain't over yet. <laughs> My hope is I do, but, uh, you know, if I can keep doing what I do, you know, uh, so we got busy. I've started groups. Uh, I got into the history. A lot of people don't dive into the history, but for some reason, that was out of character for me. I wanted to know, you know, I wanted to know, you know, and by diving into the history, it made these people much more like me and very, very real, you know. When I sobered up, everything I owned was in a little duffel bag, you know. 
And then I learned Bill really didn't have a place to live of his own for nearly five years, you know, and all that stuff's kind of irrelevant. Because the book talks about that, you know, the best years of our existence lie ahead. And, and so far that's been true to me. Let me tell you a little bit about what my life is like today and has been in sobriety. Uh, you know, I had to learn how to be okay being me and to not be so dependent upon other people, you know, to make me okay, because that's how my whole life rolled. And so I spent some time alone, you know, and then I wound up getting married. I was married in AA for 12 years. That marriage didn't last. And uh, there could be a lot of reasons for it, but had it lasted, I wouldn't be where I am today. And I believe where I am today is exactly where God wants me to be. Uh, my son passed away as a result of this illness prior to that marriage dissolving. Now, uh, yeah, four years ago, I went through cancer. Just this year, I went through a femoral artery bypass. And, uh, you know, uh, see, the line in the big book says there's going to be certain times that we don't have a defense against the first drink. Um, when my son passed away, my wife and I were on vacation. And I got down to Austin, Texas. He's a musician and bartender. and uh, I went down to hang out with some of his friends down the clubs and some of the stuff he had started. And, you know, of course, the first thing they say, let me buy a drink. I said, well, I don't drink, but if I did, it'd be a good day to get drunk. So why don't you get drunk and we'll talk. I have some great friendships with those people today. I really do. See, either God has removed it or he hasn't. It's that simple. And, and, and if I keep doing what I'm doing, then I don't have to go through that what I used to call mental masturbation, because I lose if I do. I fought that battle and the surrender in step one was given up to the fact that I, it's not that I'm not gonna drink, it's accepting the fact that left on my own devices, I am gonna drink. And that's what I was okay with in 94. That that was my, my lot and this is where it was gonna end, but God had different plans on it for me. But, the incredible part about this is, is my family for the first five years would have nothing to do with my son wouldn't talk to me for two years. You know, there's a line in the big, but let no man say he can recover unless his family comes back. It's not true. What I did was begin to repair the damage and become a demonstration rather than talk about all this stuff because they had heard enough of this. Oh, I'm sorry. I apologize. I'll never do this stuff. And they weren't interested in it. They wanted to see that something had changed in my life. And so I was allowed to be, after a number of years, I was allowed to be one of my primary care persons for my mother's life. So I was there on her, on her death. You know, my dad didn't live to see me get sober. Uh, I got to have 16 year relationship with my son, even though his mind was pretty much warped. His mother hung herself in a jail cell under a PI and his dad, you know, wasn't there for him. But I did get to have a relationship with him for 16 years. He got exposed to this. He knew uh, that my life had changed, but he couldn't quite get to the second part of that step that there wasn't somehow, some way he couldn't do something about this. And he just fixated, passed out one night. And so, you know, a lot of tragedies, but, uh, you know, how do you walk through it? I mean, that's God's grace. I think the toughest thing was a divorce. Uh, that wife had had two brain aneurysms and three brain surgeries and it was pretty bad. She got, you know, she had a lot of brain damage and we were having troubles prior to that. At least I was able to be there for her through that until she recovered. And, you know, the marriage ended and it didn't end well. It was really, 
a tough thing. It's probably the hardest thing I've gone through in sobriety because you starting over completely at 61 years old. How do you do that? I didn't believe it's possible. See, here's what my sponsor always told me. Go find an alcoholic. Help. The day of my son's memorial, and the, the group did a great memorial for him. My family was there. We did a great slideshow and all that. Two hours later, I'm doing traditions with the group. This is what I've learned to do. You know, this is how I turn things over to God. You know, me trying to figure it out. I try to get out of the way. I can do what I can with certain things, but you know, there's other things that I got nothing for it. I have to get out of the way and allow God to work in my life. And you know, it doesn't always come easy. I mean, I've spent many hours going down to the 24 hour club and sitting there working with people and, and nothing changes, but it's repetitive. I was going through a pretty low point at one point early on in sobriety. And I mean, I was, I was hurting pretty good, but I would go down that club day in and day out. I'd leave my meeting, go down there and work with a guy. I mean, I was doing whatever I could do at those time. And, and I'd go home and I would be still hurting. And then one day all suddenly at a detox facility, a miracle happened. And the members of the group that were with me said, man, are you okay? And I said, I am now. And I was free of that thing that had been just dragging on me for six months crazy that's how miracles happen you know sometimes i know it happens quicker for other people uh my awakening came reasonably quick uh but i put a lot of work into this you know people say sobriety is free well it's not free in my case it requires self-sacrifice of my time inconvenience to me and there's you know i get a lot of pleasure out i've got to see a lot of folks lives get recreated and and, and i'm damn proud of them well, I spent most of my life, the first half of 27 years of my life, just wasting it, going out doing whatever the hell I want to do with little thought or regard of the effects it had on others or thinking about their welfare. And, you know, you, you go through an inventory process and then you go through a forgiveness process and you, you make amends and all this other stuff, you know, those things are still true. You know, I never took the time to really dig into my dad, you know, uh, I never did. It was more about what I could get him to do. What my dad always wanted for me would be happy and self-supporting, and that today I am. My mom always wanted me to have a relationship with God. Now, two o'clock in the morning, I'll be passed out in a damn chair, right? <laughs> and I'd come too, and this is when she used to like to do her Bible study. <laughs> and she looked me square in the eye and she'd go, What's wrong with you? And I'm like, I'm just tired. She says, You ain't get right with God. And we'd get in this great debate about God, right? Well, they're still killing each other in the name of saying God, you know. Well, she just threw up her hands. I drove that poor woman crazy. Uh, and that's how I reciprocated the love and care they had for me. You know, I was that selfish and self-centered, you know. Uh, and my sponsor always, you know, when I got down to inventory and looked at that and looked at how really I was versus the person I wanted you to see me as, you know, the good guy. It's not that I couldn't do good things. Not that I hadn't done some good things. But at the end of the day, it was really wanting you to think well of me. You know, and, you know our program requires ego deflation at depth. And here's the greatest thing today. I don't have to be so damn humiliated to learn a little bit about humility. Today. I try to remain humble. What, what I'm always thinking might not line up with what I'm saying. <laughs> My sponsor, you said, you can think what you think, but, you know, 
that's okay. But if you say something and you, and you do something, you make amends for, you need to clean it up, you know, and I can do that today. If I'm wrong, I don't have to want a long winded explanation of why, you know what I'm talking about? Well, I've made this mistake, but this and that and that and whatever. If that's the case, you're blaming it on somebody else. It's hell. I did it. What can I do to fix it? You know, <laughs> you know, and then try not to repeat it. <laughs> I enjoy the quality of life. I have a lot of friends. You know, the book talks about a host of friends, maybe some of you folks, you know, on the common journey, which is pretty cool. Uh, I look back, you know, at my life growing up and whatever, just always wanting to be something I wasn't. Some of us used to call that keeping up with the Joneses, you know, trying to fix the internal with the external stuff, you know, and I put these conditions on me. Nobody else put these conditions on me. I put them on myself which is crazy, you know? Uh, you know, one of the things that opened the door to the possibility about this, I mean, and I'd never heard this before, God as you understood God. I always thought that I had to believe and understand exactly as other people did. And I just gave you an example of how my mom would get into this deal and she was dead on, I need to get right with God, you know? I needed to be able to do it on simpler terms. And I needed to be able to have a God of my understanding. I was introduced to a very loving God by a very good minister, Reverend Loman, at an early age. And one day I walked in there, I'm still in elementary school. I walked in the front door and I walked out the back door in the alley and picked up a cigarette and hung out with Steve. And then we, we went out to see what was in the world. And I lived in that world. You know, it says we're very worldly indeed, right? I'm worldly indeed. I've been around the block a few times and I probably learned more than I should have learned when I learned it. And, but you know, who cared at that time? I was having fun. I wasn't thinking about anybody else but me, which is part of the selfishness. You know, I hope today I've learned a little bit more about honesty. Uh, I don't have to be brutally honest with somebody. Uh, I have a lot of folks in my life when things are going on that uh, I can talk to, I can be honest with, which I need to do. You know, um, I still work with people. Um, a year ago, I was given this opportunity to basically retire. And, uh, you know, I couldn't afford to live where I was. And I wasn't happy in the big city. And I had some friends up here in Joplin. And uh, they, you know, and I'll say Joplin has got some pretty good recovery. They do anywhere you go. But there's not a lot of big book up here. And we're just big book people. That's what we are, the way I was raised. And so they started a little group up here. And I thought, well, in the community, is a very community orientated place where you have a lot of engagement involvement with all different agencies, churches, whatever. And it was an opportunity that I thought I could be helpful. In addition to, it's a place I thought would give me a little more peace of mind other than the big city. So it worked well for both ends. So I moved up here. And, and so this has come true so far. And it's a thought I had years ago of wanting to do some of these things, but you know, I don't think I ever could have pulled it off by myself. So I believe it's just God doing for me what I can't do for myself. Uh, and I've started to develop a lot of relationships and work with people, younger people, because that's the coolest part, watching their lives get recreated to, to avert some of the stuff that I had to go through just out of ignorance. You know, I can't blame anybody else other than me. I mean, like I said, I would hope that you know, the theme used to be in some of the AA, I can't remember whichever conference it was, when anybody reaches out, I want the hand of AA to be there. 
you know, for that is I'm responsible as used to be one of the things. And so page 77 is my job is to fit myself to be a maximum service to God and the people about me. So that's enlarged up here. I got a little part-time gig that I work for a community outreach, uh, recovery outreach community center. Uh, we do meetings, various things there, but what we do is people coming in that need to connect to some resources in there. My job at that point is not to direct them. I can tell them my story and whatever else, but to help them maybe gain access to some of the resources they may need, whether it be housing or whether it need to be get an ID or, or, or whatever they need to do. So we get to see them all the time, you know, and I, you know, and nothing will keep you more sober on the straight and narrow than watching somebody walking around like you did, you know, at a trip to St. Louis last week, a young lady I spent years trying to help. Uh, we had this thing planned and I get over in St. Louis. She said, don't come. I'm drunk. Well, three days later, she's in psych ward, you know, and I'm, spend the rest of the time with her family. So I don't disregard the family. I've also been involved with, with Al-Anon, working with families, uh, just all kinds of stuff. Just This thing is only limited by me placing limitations on it. And I believe God's not done with me yet. Uh, I'm still here. I'm, for those that got any sense of humor, I call it being on the Humpty Dumpty side. They're still putting me back together and I'm still falling apart. So there you go. Um, You know, I owe everything to Alcoholics Anonymous when you get right down to it. But what is AA? I think that's important. And I'll, I'll, I'll end after this. I made an assumption, and I was very surprised that everybody sitting in a meeting knew what Alcoholics Anonymous was. When I actually started going out to meetings after I'd worked the steps and had a spiritual awakening, I was really surprised. And I don't say this to be ugly. I do not. How many people sitting in meetings do not have a clue what Alcoholics Anonymous is. Alcoholics Anonymous is a set of principles. The fellowship took its name from the book. We have 36 of them. The steps are personal recovery. The traditions are for unity. And if you're one of those that can do service, God bless you. You got 12 concepts. I did a little service probably 25 years ago, and I realized I'd rather be in the trenches. It takes a lot of patience if you're in service. Work. And my hat's off to you. You know, I used to call it take three aspirin before, two during, and one after, because it takes a lot of patience, because everybody has a voice in Alcoholics Anonymous, which is pretty cool. I'll end with this and give a few minutes closing. One of the greatest things today in my life is I like being me. I really do. I'm, I'm a, I don't want to be anybody else. And my whole life, I always thought if I had what you had and this, that, and the other, that I would be perfectly okay. Uh, basically I'm comfortable with my own skin one of the most important things in my life today is my connection to God as I understand God and that consciousness that I've developed over the years that little voice that I shut down when I was a little bitty kid and I'll tell you how I shut it down we used to go shopping every two weeks and there was a guy that ran a grocery store at the AMP down there we used to go real friendly to family orientated and stuff and I remember we were in there one time and I wanted to touch you up and I'd been taught right from wrong or whatever. We all have this little God consciousness in us. And I stole the Tootsie Roll. And I ate that thing. And I was scared to death for the next two weeks when we went to the grocery store that this guy was going to bust me. 
And I went in that grocery store. I can't remember his name. And he didn't say a word. And I thought, aha. And that's the moment I started putting that little voice to sleep. And that little voice came back online. And that's the most precious thing in my life. You know, that I don't want to lose. Just become known to the world. You know, that's the whole thing. And so, I, you know, step 11 in the morning is how I start my days. Uh, and it sets a tone for everything. And I can honestly say in 27 years, the days I missed, you could count on two hands. That's probably a true statement. Now, step 10, my relapse prevention, 10, 11, and 12, I'm probably not the greatest step 10 -er. You know, sometimes I let things go a little too far. I can, you know, when maybe I should take care of them at the moment, at least get them outside of my head, you know, and discuss them with a needle one. But I pretty much know when I've crossed the line, it's called that little voice when you start feeling guilty is remorse, which means I've got my way at somebody's expense. I've pushed it too far, gotten too damn cute, and I've hurt somebody, you know. Uh, but step 12 is really what it's all about. Carry this message first foremost and learn how to practice these principles in all of my affairs and if you're married and you got a family you know damn well that's the most difficult place to place it i thought i knew everything in this book till i got married off a of, holy cow <laughs> but it says we clean house and each morning with the family asking for patience praying for patience you know and it does and god bless you um i want to thank everybody for being here uh and if you're new in this journey, God bless you. It's, it's more than I ever imagined. And if you're still here, I hope you keep going. Uh, you know, I think Alcoholics Anonymous is still a viable today. There's still as much misinformation out there as there ever has been. Uh, our job is for those that other methods have failed. You know, that's really what it is. And it's the ones and twos and threes, fives here and there. But at least we get to plant a lot of seeds as we go along the way. So God bless each and every one of you. And thank you for having me. I'm done.